This is The Weekly for Friday, June 21st. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. When a group of gays, lesbians, and transgenders stood up to police raiding a popular gay hangout in New York City on the night of June 28, 1969, they had no idea where their actions would lead. The event became known as the Stonewall Riots, and this month marking the 50th anniversary of the uprising. On this episode of The Weekly, our guest is Brock Thompson. He is a columnist for the Washington Blade newspaper. He talks about Stonewall, the history of the LGBTQ movement, equality, and his own personal journey. We begin, though, with this from C-SPAN 3's American History TV and Patty Rule of the Museum, which is hosting an exhibit marking the anniversary. Gay Americans lived in fear and secrecy for much of the early 20th century. Gay people could be arrested for showing affection in public, police prowled parks for, to arrest gay people who were seeking assignations there. It was a difficult time to be a gay American. But this is when you see the rise of a few early LGBTQ groups, social groups, uh, such as the Mattachine Society and the Daughters of Belitis, when people are meeting in secret in their homes largely to talk about what it's like to be a gay man, to talk about what it's like to be a lesbian woman, to socialize, to dance, to have fun. But out of these social groups, rose movements for social justice, where instead of simply seeking tolerance by the public, they decided they want more than that. They wanted actual acceptance. And here you see some uh, artifacts from the Mattachine Society, a matchbook which would be passed on to people in public places uh, of people that they thought were like-minded people. Again, a very secret way to say, are you gay? I am too. Let's talk about it. And here is a legal book that was published for gay people who were arrested by police that gave them advice about what their rights were uh, when dealing with the police. From C-SPAN 3's American History TV, part of our American Artifacts Tour, and joining us in our studios here in Washington is Brock Thompson. He is a columnist for The Washington Blade. And as we look back at the Stonewall Riots, which spanned over six days, beginning on Saturday, June 28, 1969, and where we are today, what's changed? What's changed is uh, visibility. That's the one word to sum it up. As the Stonewall Riots, of course, we commemorate the 50th anniversary of those events uh, taking place in New York City's Greenwich Village, June 28th through July 1st of 1969. Uh, the public perception, public attitudes towards uh, gay and lesbian Americans, LGBT Americans, has changed dramatically in acceptance and visibility. Why was that such a seminal moment? Well, that's a great question. Stonewall has come to mean, I think, so much more than what had happened on those uh, few nights in Greenwich Village. It's just become such a rallying cry for the LGBT movement. Uh, basically, what happened the first night on June 28th in that stretch of Greenwich Village, the 50th block of Christopher Street, uh, was a police raid, which were very common at the time, uh, on gay bars. The Stonewall riots, um, essentially gays had had enough and decided to fight back, essentially, and uh, that's what we credit with the uh, this beginning of the sort of modern LGBT movement. And police initially made 21 arrests for what? What was the violation? Well, there needn't really be a violation. It could have been anything from uh, public drunkenness, disorderly conduct was quite common. Um, 
what would they be called? Any sort of perversion that they sought to uh, tr- uh, stamp out in New York City. Uh, the mayor at the time w- made it very well known that he wanted all gay bars out of New York City. So they hadn't really needed a reason to raid. They they just uh, they just they just did so at their at their own discretion. So. Mark Segal is the author of the book And Then I Danced, and he recently spoke to New Jersey Public Television about what he saw as an eyewitness as a gay American mm-hmm. in Greenwich Village 50 years ago. Let's listen. What happened? Well, I'd gotten to New York six weeks before. I was an 18-year-old kid just out of high school, and I did what any gay kid at that time did, moved to the big city, mm-hmm. uh, because that's the only place that we thought the gay people were. They didn't exist. We were invisible. Uh, there were no cable stations then. There were uh, there was no internet. So if you wanted to find out about gay people, you went to your library, and most likely they didn't have anything. But you knew that going to the big city, you'd find gay people. And in New York, the place you went was Christopher Street, mm-hmm. and that's where the Stonewall was. Mm-hmm. And so for six weeks, I'd walk up and down Christopher Street, pop into the bars occasionally. One of them was the Stonewall. And on that night, I happened to be in the bar, The lights flashed on, Uh, police came in, and the first thing the police do is they harass the queens or the effeminate people or stereotypical people. They harassed and blackmailed the people who looked like they were businessmen. And people looked like like me, who had just been in New York for six weeks, who looked like the boy next door, they caught it and let out. They had no use for people like me. And what happened was, uh, the reality is, I'll say something that no other person still will say, I was a coward. I was thrilled to be carted and let out of the bar. Mm. But what I did do is stand across the street and watch everything that happened. And as it began to, got, began to unfold, they would let people come out of the bar slowly and surely. But that began to co- become a semicircle around the front door of gay people. And eventually inside the bar were just the police and a couple of patrons. And all of a sudden people started throwing things at the door. A firsthand account of what it was like 50 years ago in Brock Thompson as you hear that what goes through your mind? What goes through my mind is simply that we need to remember what Stonewall was as a physical space, as it occupied that uh, in the 50th block of Christopher Street in the heart of the village. That sound clip is so very important. I'm so glad you included it because it does tell us that Stonewall as a space was not really a space for white, middle-class, upper-class gay men. This was a marginalized community. This, What you would have seen in Stonewall were the marginalized people of the LGBT community at the time. You had transgendered people, people of color, uh, prostitutes, sex workers, just really a marginalized group. The bar itself was mafia-owned. It was run by the mafia. It was quite a dive. And the way we think of dive bars, uh, there were sometimes hepatitis outbreaks because they never washed their glasses. Um, It was just not a space where professionals would have gone because, as that clip pointed out, they would have been risking uh, their social stance, uh, their jobs, uh, where they were in society, their family. So they were not willing to risk that. So what you had in the Stonewall space were gays and lesbians and people of the LGBT community that essentially had nothing to lose. And so that was very important in those who fought back for the first time uh, because they had nothing to lose and they were simply tired of being pushed around. And let's kind of set the stage in terms of what was happening in the country because you had the civil rights movement in the 1960s. You had the onset of the Vietnam War. And so there was built into the country this resistance to a war that many people questioned. 
and the objective of Dr. Martin Luther King and others for civil rights for African Americans. Well, that is true, and this Stonewall also makes an important. Uh, well, transformation in the LGBT rights movement. And the LGBT rights movement sought to um, model less the civil rights movement and more the anti-war movement. So if you, there's some fantastic images images out there, Frank Kameny and members of the Mattachine Society and the homophile movement as the first clip uh, spoke about, of silently protesting in front of the White House. This was earlier in the 60s. Um, marching in suits and ties and ladies wore dresses, uh, very dignified, sought to m- mirror more closely the civil rights movement, respectability, employability. Later, as we saw with the Stonewall, the rights of the Stonewall movement, they become to, to mirror more the anti-war movement, more public displays of rioting and social unrest and that sort of thing. So there is a sort of a transformation that we see with Stonewall. And what is possibly most striking is that in the mid-1960s, one of President Johnson's closest aides was forced out because he had a homosexual affair. And now we have an openly gay man who is in the top tier of the Democratic presidential field in the name of Pete Buttigieg. Isn't that remarkable? It, uh, that is one just striking barometer of just how far we've come with the mayor, Pete Buttigieg, who uh, is a serious contender for the Democratic nomination, married. Uh, Harvard-educated, and a veteran. So, absolutely. Let me remind our listeners, we're talking with Brock Thompson. He is a columnist with the Washington Blade, a native of Arkansas. And so, for you personally, as Mm -hmm. somebody who is a gay American, what has this meant for you and your own evolution as you look at the history of the LGBTQ community and what you have faced yourself? What I have faced myself as came out as an 18, a young man back in Arkansas. There was not a real gay network to speak of. The internet even was not a thing really back then either, so there was no hunting for it there. I came out in college, met my first boyfriend then, and that was a queer network that we had established through college friends and that sort of thing, piling into cars on the weekends, driving some, gosh, 45 miles round round trip to the closest gay bar in Little Rock that we could go to, and that was the Discovery Club. I will remember it to this day. It was the first gay bar I ever went to is down sort of in the warehouse district by the rivers. There was no sign on the door. Uh, You wouldn't really know what it was unless you went inside. It was very secretive in that way. So in a lot of ways, even in uh, the 1990s in Arkansas, my gay and lesbian experience was closer to that of of New York in the 60s almost, and that it was very uh, marginalized and uh, discreet. One of the defining moments in terms of the media coverage of the gay community came in a CBS News documentary anchored by Mike Wallace. And I want to share with you two portions, including this, the beginning. The Homosexuals with CBS News correspondent Mike Wallace. Homosexuality is an enigma. Even in this era of bold sexual mores, it remains a subject that people find disturbing, embarrassing, and the reluctance to discuss it. Yet there is a growing concern about homosexuals in society, about their increasing visibility. In preparing this broadcast, CBS News commissioned a survey by the Opinion Research Corporation into public attitudes toward homosexuality. We discovered that Americans consider homosexuality more harmful to society than adultery, abortion, prostitution. That from CBS News in the late 1960s, just a snippet, the very opening segment of that documentary. What do you think? 
Well, that again is quite telling. Um, what the public generally thought about gays and lesbians before, um, well, during the Stonewall riots in the end of the 60s, um, I have some clips here from the Village Voice uh, reporting from the Stonewall riots at the time, and they called it the Faggot Rebellion. Uh, they said that they were upset because Judy Garland's funeral was that week. It was just just whatever they could to denigrate the, them and, the, and what had happened at the time. But that was just uh, just how the public thought about gays and lesbians at the time. And we also have to remember, as I mentioned earlier with Frank Kameny and the homophile movement and mimicking the civil rights movement in a lot of ways, what they were trying to say was, we are respectable, we are employable, and we're not crazy. And what you have to remember is homosexuality, as it was known or referred to at the time, in the Diagnostic Statistics Manual, the DSM, was still classified as a mental illness all the way until 1977. And so that's generally how the public thought of gays and lesbians. One more part from the CBS documentary, and it's available, by the way, if you want to Google it on YouTube. There is one man who is profiled, but he doesn't show his face. Let's listen. This man is 27, college educated. He was unable to hold a job because of his inability to contain his homosexual inclinations. He's been in jail three times for committing homosexual acts. If he is arrested once more, he faces the possibility of lifism. He is now on probation and in psychotherapy. I had a very domineering mother, tyrant. That's a very sweet tyrant, but a tyrant nonetheless. It was a love that I had that was kind of killing. And I was a fat child. was made fun of by the other children. Uh, mother was going to have her way about how I dressed, how I acted, what I did, what I didn't do. A fairly curious child, but I had to restrain it. And I was afraid of her. I was scared to death of her. When did you first go into therapy? As soon as my parents uh, found out, they couldn't understand what they had done to uh, bring about such a turn of events. So again, treating sexual orientation, in this case, a gay man, as somebody who needed therapy, who had a mental condition. Absolutely, and that fits perfectly as what we were referring to as the American uh, Psychiatric Association had classified uh, homosexuality as a mental illness. And again, and that was up until 1977. And how liberating that must have been when that was finally struck out of the DSM uh, for gays and lesbians. That moment. Have you had the chance to talk to people who remember the events of Stonewall? Yes, I have met a few people at Stonewall. What is interesting about Stonewall is I the amount of people you meet at Stonewall or said they were at Stonewall. It, it just simply can't. It, it's become almost like Woodstock in a lot of ways. Uh, the it's become more iconic as the years have gone on. Uh, but uh, yes, I have met with a few Stonewall veterans. Well, let's fast forward from the late 1960s to the early 1980s as the AIDS epidemic was growing in intensity. And I want to share with you, this is an exchange between Lester Kinsolving, who has since passed away, a reporter at the time, and White House spokesperson Larry Speaks, October 15th, 1982 in the White House briefing room. Does the president have any reaction to the announcement of the Center for Disease Control in Atlanta that AIDS is now an epidemic in 600, over 600 cases? And, uh, over a third of them are dying. It's known as gay plague. 
<laughs> no, it is. I mean, it's a pretty serious thing that uh, one in every three people that get this have died, and I wondered if the president is aware of it. I don't have it. Are you? Do you? You don't have it. Well, I'm relieved to hear that. Do you? You didn't answer my question. How do you know? Does the president, in other words, the White House looks on this as a great joke. No, I don't know anything about it, Lester. Does the president, does anybody in the White House know about this epidemic, Larry? I don't think so. I don't think there's been any. There's been no personal experience here, Lester. No, I mean... I thought you were keeping Dr. I checked thoroughly with Dr. Ruge this morning, and he's had no uh, <laughs> no patience. He, he suffered from AIDS or whatever it is. The president doesn't have gay plague. Is that what you're saying or what? No, didn't say that. Didn't say that. I thought I heard you on the State Department over there. Why don't you stay over there? <laughs> because, because I love you, Larry. Oh, that's, I see. That's well, I don't, let's don't put it in those terms, Lester. <laughs> oh, I <laughs> I hope so. The White House briefing from October 1982 with the then spokesperson Larry Speaks in the Reagan administration, laughter. That is a chilling audio clip in a lot of ways about how uh, gays and lesbians, especially gay men during the, the advent of the beginning of the AIDS crisis, were treated. And we can go back, of course, to Stonewall, and I would be remiss if I didn't rem uh, mention my publication, The Washington Blade, uh, now celebrating its 50th anniversary, first published in October of 1969. It was one sheet. Uh, you can find this easily online. And it's quite interesting. Uh, you had on that one sheet one column, and it read, uh, Gay Liberation Front. After raids on the Stonewall Bar and the usual police harassment, the NYC gay community has formed the Gay Liberation Front. And it goes on to mention what that is and how you can join but that was a name intentionally taken from the Vietnamese uh, Liberation Army. Again, we're beginning to mirror more closely this, uh, the anti-war movement and the tactics displayed by that rather than the civil rights movement. And why that's interesting in relation to the clip you just played is the Gay Liberation Front was then the seed for all sorts of um, gay rights activism in the 80s in response to the AIDS crisis, uh, out, outrage, uh, and all those other public displays of, of protest, as also the focus became less about employment and respectability and more about life and death and how those uh, activities played out and how gay and lesbians got the attention they needed to focus on that crisis. And so again, just trying to understand the stigma, if a straight man is at a bar and tries to meet a woman, it's not a criminal incident. But there was a stigma if a gay man tried to pick up so-called cruising another gay man, and the police would target that man. Absolutely, absolutely. Cruising. Uh, there were several stings. The four policemen that first went into the Stonewall Inn that night were essentially in plain clothes. Uh, so there was all sorts of entrapment. Uh, gays and lesbians, especially gay men, would always were always complaining about entrapment uh, because... Um, uh, of, of police trying to uh, stamp out uh, gay gay life and gay activities in the city, or indeed in the rural areas too. As I found out grow, growing up in Arkansas, there was often these stings in parks and libraries and every everything, uh, every, everywhere that they thought gay men might congregate. So where are we today? Where is society today? Well, we've come leaps and bounds. Uh, Stonewall is just 50 years ago, and in a lot of ways that's a long time ago, and in a lot of ways it's no time at all. Uh, the first people that threw the first bricks that fought back that night were, as I mentioned, uh, marginalized groups, uh, 
transgendered people, uh, people of color, uh, uh, prostitutes, um, unemployed people. And still, we have a lot of ways to go as far as as far as help making sure those people have a place at the table, and making sure their rights, needs, and uh, are, are, their needs are met. And so, with that being said, we still have the Equality Act before us that did pass, of course, um, the House of Representatives last month. Uh, it is yet to pass the Senate, and um, who knows if it actually will. But that is what is before us at the moment. And the irony is, as we celebrate gay marriage and the milestones that we have achieved, uh, two people, of course, two men could get married in my home state of Arkansas, or many other states for that matter, and the next day be kicked out of their apartment or fired from their jobs, and they have no legal recourse. And that is what the Equality Act is sort of, is answering. So. Earlier this year, Time Magazine had a cover story called The First Family, and it was Pete Buttigieg and his husband. He has recently said that uh, if he is in the White House, he wouldn't rule out having a family. And I'm just trying to get a sense of how significant his campaign is to the gay community. It's hugely significant. And in fact, I know the cover you're speaking of. It was a work of American artistic genius. All you needed was an apple pie sort of cooling on the railing in the background, and it would have been any sort of Rockwellian portrait of America. So in a lot of ways, it is hugely important for the self-esteem of a young gay kid, let's use Arkansas again as an example, to see that, uh, just as akin to um, um, African-American children seeing the first black president. What sort of self-esteem that does for an entire group of people cannot be overstated. And the significance of his campaign is that it's not because he's gay, he is openly gay, but the issues that he is espousing. So it's not his his identification as a gay American, but his experience in the military as the mayor of a, a community in Indiana, and also uh, the issues that he's presenting to the electorate. Well, the issues he's presenting and how he's presenting himself, too, I think is very novel. Uh, you could almost call it non-threatening, but he is a gay veteran. He is also a gay Christian. He is a gay Democrat, and he's a gay mayor of a mid small Midwest town. So all of these make it seem, uh, well, very American <laughs> in a lot of ways. But as you talk to your peers, mm -hmm. what's the biggest challenge facing the LGBTQ community? Well, that we just had another transgendered person murdered in D.C. just last week. And so as we progress and remember that a lot of us have enjoyed so much of the benefits and visibility and rights and milestones uh, since Stonewall, that um, that progress, a lot of people do get left behind. And so as we think about what the LGBT movement means, uh, we also have to remember that not everyone is, in, is included in, 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 in those milestones, and we have to make sure that everyone has a place at the table. So where do you think we will be? 50 years from now? Well, I hope we have what would be closest to full equality for our gay Americans, LGBT Americans, uh, equal rights, uh, housing, employment, health care. Um, marriage was just the tip of the iceberg in many ways, but we have so, so far to go. Is the stigma gone, changing, evolving? Where is it today? I don't think it would ever really it would ever really be gone. You could ask almost ask yourself, well, you know, would, will racism be gone in a hundred years? I mean, that would be sort of um, sophomoric to say yes, but I don't know if the stigma will ever be gone. The trajectory is certainly improving, with the majority of Americans uh, favoring gay marriage. We're just as 
when I was in college, it was the majority of Americans disapproving of gay marriage. And that's just not that all, all that long ago, essentially. A columnist for the Washington Blade, you earned your doctorate where? Uh, the PhD was King's College, University of London. Uh, my dissertation, later published into a book, was The Unnatural State, Gay and Lesbian Life, or Gay and Lesbian Life in Arkansas. Uh, looking at uh, gay and lesbian life through the Depression, through the Clinton era, and uh, that trajectory as well. So. If people want to follow you on social media, how can uh, they do so? And Brock in D.C. on Instagram and Twitter. So. Brock Thompson, he is a columnist for The Washington Blade. Thanks for stopping by our C-SPAN studios. We appreciate it. Thanks very much for having me. And a reminder, this podcast is available on the free C-SPAN radio app or wherever you download your favorite podcast. We thank you for listening.